0: Well, we are taking a little break from Matthew's Gospel, so if you will turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that's where our text is. Uh, it's also printed there in the, uh, in the bulletin, quite a long passage. We're not going to talk about everything in it, uh, but I thought it would be good to read the whole thing. So 1 Corinthians 2, <clears throat> uh, it's been five years since the last time that we uh, elected new elders and deacons. So we're beginning the process again now of nomination and training and election and ordination of officers. So the the congregation is called to participate in that process. So we're going to have a short series of sermons to help you prepare for that. Uh, We'll explain more about the details of that process uh, during the congregational meeting today. A lot of the practical details of it. But uh, these sermons are meant to convey something of a biblical vision of church leadership. And so uh, some of you already serve as elders and deacons in the church. Some of you might soon go through the process of exploring uh, whether you're called to serve as officers in this congregation. But all of you have the opportunity to participate by recognizing who are the servants among you whom God might be calling to serve In office as an elder or deacon in this church. So the Bible says some pretty clear things about the ministry of the gospel and the nature of church leadership as it's shared by elders and deacons in the church. I'm hoping that we can all get a little clearer vision um, through this series so that each one of us can better participate, uh, not just in this process, but really in uh, the ministries of the church. So next week, we are going to look at the office of elder. The following week, we'll look at the office of deacon. But this week, we're going to establish something of an overarching philosophy of ministry that really shapes everything that we do and should be recognizable in our leaders. So we're going to talk about the gospel-centeredness of Christian life and ministry. We're going to talk about the the cross-centeredness of Christian life and ministry. We're going to talk about Jesus Christ crucified. Uh, we're going to talk about why we always talk about Jesus Christ crucified uh, and why that is the central focus of those who are called to church ministry. <clears throat> hopefully you won't say, you oh, know, that's just something for leaders in the church doesn't really apply to me. Uh, but hopefully you'll recognize this should be the center of your life, too. And so let's talk about First Corinthians 2. Uh first. Let me pray. Then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, you've given us great riches in Christ and in the word of your grace. Now grant us your Spirit's help in knowing this wealth in such a way that it is clear that you are truly with us and for us. To the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God With lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages, for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept. The things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord, so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So... um, Really, going to focus just on the first few verses of that passage together. So, let's get a little background uh, on our passage. Acts chapter 18 is sort of the biblical background for um, uh, Corinth here. It's, a, it's, it's the record of Paul's first visit to Corinth, which is in Greece. Uh, as was his standard operating procedure when Paul arrived in a new place to preach the gospel, he started off in the Jewish synagogue testifying to the Jews that Jesus is their Messiah. He is the Christ. Uh, Paul was not alone in Corinth, but he was joined there by Silas and Timothy, who were fellow ministers of the gospel, who had traveled with Paul before in his missionary journeys. Uh, And I think that's who he's referring to when he says, you know, we here in this passage, Silas and Timothy. Uh, When the Jews opposed him, which again was sort of pretty... Standard, he goes to the Jewish synagogue and preaches, then they oppose him, kick him out. Uh, When they opposed him and reviled him, then Paul left them to their own fate and went literally next door to the house of a Gentile uh, worshiper named Titius Justus. The ruler of the Jewish synagogue, a guy named Crispus, he became a believer and he and his household were baptized, and many of the Corinthians became Christians. It says there in Acts 18. <clears throat> and so began this church in Corinth with a mix of all kinds of people in Corinth, uh, Jews and Gentiles together. So as you, first, uh, as you read Paul's letters to the Corinthians, a few things stand out. First uh, is that the church is pretty messed up. Uh, We can be honest about that. Church is is pretty messed up, just like the city that it comes from, the city of Corinth. Uh, Sectarianism, spiritual one-upsmanship, sexual immorality, various expressions of selfishness are rampant, not just in Corinth, not just in the broader culture, but uh, even in the church. So the church often sins in the same ways as the surrounding culture. Uh, That is a reality that we see in the letters to the Corinthians. Second, as you read these letters, you can see that Paul really loves the Corinthians. Uh, Yeah, it's a really messed up bunch of folks in that church, but he writes two long letters to help them in their walk with God and their walk with Christ, demonstrating a real care and a real concern for them. And you can compare that with the the tenor of, uh, you know, maybe another letter, his scathing, abrupt letter to the Galatians. It was to the religious folks, right, who uh, seem to have all things together. And uh, you'll see then, sort of by contrast, uh, Paul's very gracious heart for flagrant sinners. Uh, The flagrant sinners in Corinth. So Paul loves them. And third, Paul addresses all the Corinthians' problems because he loves them. He addresses all those problems with the gospel. So, as in all his letters, the good news about Jesus is the only foundation that he offers for the transformation of lives when it comes to lawsuits or sex or how you treat others or whatever. Our passage is in a section at the beginning of his first letter to the Corinthians where he is addressing the way that they view church leaders. So that should be relevant to us this morning. (coughs) Uh, There's been this unhealthy practice of personality cults. Uh, Thinking that, you know, this preacher's better than that one uh, because he's more eloquent or he's more clever or, uh, you know, whatever. We we want to be identified with that guy because that all makes us look better. (laughs) It makes us look more sophisticated when we have a more sophisticated leader that we're following. Uh, Apollos, he's articulate. He's a good philosophical debater. Uh, Paul... Keeps tripping over his own words. Rather unimpressive. But our reputation benefits when people see us aligned with impressive people like Apollos. See, in the church, we have impressive people too. So, um, Paul exposes that for what it is. And it is self-exaltation based on, you know, working the world's value system. Adopting it and working it. Uh, The world apart from God values things like like a certain form of wisdom, and power, and wealth, and honor. The world apart from God values those things especially in its leaders, right? But God works in spite of those things. God works uh, to bring people to a true knowledge of himself, which is the only thing that really matters in this life and in the next. In fact, the values of the kingdom of God, as we frequently establish... They're pretty much the exact opposite of the values of this world apart from God. The values of the kingdom of God are pretty much the exact opposite of the values of this world. So Jesus said that he is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. No one is greater. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for sinners, for traitors to his crown, for those who have opposed his leadership style. He used his authority not to advance himself, but to serve others who did not deserve it. Being the God that he is, Jesus laid down his very life to love and serve sinners. And he said that anyone who wanted to be a leader in his kingdom has to be just like him. Last of all, servant, even slave of all. Uh, In fact, every Christian not just every leader in the church, but every Christian is called to pick up his or her cross, deny himself or herself, and follow Jesus uh, daily, constantly. The life that God lives in Jesus, the, life, the, the way of true life that he reveals to us, is the way of humble, self-sacrificial love. And that's the way of the cross. That's the way Paul will use that language when he talks about the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is a real, literal, unique cross, being that singular time and place where the Son of God offered himself up as a perfect sacrifice for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only way to have a relationship with God, and it is the symbol of his love is grace flowing toward us in the face of our universal rebellion and sin. Jesus was willing to suffer a cruel death as a criminal in our stead in order to provide a way for us to have eternal life with God. So the cross of Jesus Christ is uniquely powerful to save, and the cross of Jesus Christ is the pattern for our lives. We are called to participate in sufferings like his, to know him and to make him known through our sacrificial serving love in order to bring his light to a dark world that is dead set against God. So it belongs to us to move out in forgiveness, to move out in grace toward those who are undeserving of it, uh, because that's how God is. That's how his son is toward us. That's his life alive in us through his Holy Spirit. Living that way is only possible when you are actually fueled by God's love, when you're assured of his love, when you're impressed by his love, when you're filled with his love to exalt his love, when his free grace is worth more to you than your pride or your comfort. So we live cruciform lives only when Jesus Christ crucified fills our vision. Jeremiah spoke about this in our Old Testament reading that Tim read. Thus says Yahweh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I'm Yahweh who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth, for in these things I delight declares Yahweh. So, <clears throat> Paul quoted from that passage right at the end of chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1, which is immediately before the passage we've read. Uh, he quoted from that <clears throat> in his argument for why the Corinthians should not be so obsessed with the things that the world values, especially when it comes to how they view their leaders and what they want to see in their leaders, how they want their leaders' qualities to reflect on them. Right? So, at the end of 1 Corinthians 1, Paul wrote, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Jesus has become everything to us. That's what Paul is saying. If you want wisdom from God, If you want righteousness and sanctification and redemption, if you want to understand and know the God who loves, who delights in these things, the only thing that truly matters in all the world, in life and in death, to understand and know God, then you want Jesus Christ. He is everything to us. So he says in our passage, uh, Paul says about his own ministry in Corinth, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So in seminary preaching classes, um, a lot of time is spent on what is called delivery, uh, which in my mind can sometimes be equated with lofty speech, actually. Um, You get dinged for stuff like trembling. If you demonstrate weakness or fear in your preaching class, then your professor takes you aside and asks you whether you really think you're cut out for this whole preaching thing. If you are an unimpressive person, you will probably fail church planter's assessment like I did. Paul is saying he might not have scored well in homiletics class. He might not have met the standards for church planter in our denomination. But that he kept focusing on the main thing, Jesus Christ crucified. In fact, he said he determined to know nothing else among the church there in Corinth, during his time there in Corinth. So, In one of my seminary preaching classes, uh, the the class was all working together, collaborating to produce a sermon from some passage from the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus was not mentioned in the sermon that the class produced. It was a sermon that, honestly, uh, a Jew could have preached, or a Muslim or a Mormon easily could have preached. Uh, When I asked what made this a specifically Christian sermon, that's the kind of student I was, uh, Asking antagonistic questions. <laughs> when I asked what made this a specifically Christian sermon and suggested that we're called to, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, my professor told me, <clears throat> and I quote, if you preach the gospel every week, it'll get boring real quick. And I think Paul would disagree. And I think Berta would disagree. <laughs> and many of you. <laughs> Paul preached the gospel and nothing but the gospel. The whole time he was in Corinth with those messed up sinners. And every time he wrote a letter trying to help those messed up sinners. That's what he's talking about. Paul is not saying that he spent every sermon the whole time telling people the basics of how to become a Christian. And he's not saying, you know, there's a lot of important things in the Bible. And... uh, The gospel is one of those, but it's the most important, so it'll get the most time. He's saying what Jesus said about himself in places like John 5 or Luke 24, where Jesus said that the whole Bible is about him. It's about finding life in him. He said there is a way to read the Bible and not find it to be about Jesus, to not find life with God in Jesus. He acknowledged there's a way to read the Bible and do that. But then there is a way to read the Bible like Jesus taught the apostles, the disciples. The whole Bible is about Jesus as our redeemer for our life of God. Every book, every passage is to be seen within the context of the gospel, the light of the gospel. Every passage either talks about <clears throat> our desperate need for salvation or it highlights our sins and our weaknesses in every conceivable part of our lives or about God's gracious provision for our salvation, explicitly talking about those things. Every passage talks about him setting us free from our slavery to sin, or his welcoming us into his family, or his promises of life for, uh, for life everlasting with him, all bought by the blood of Christ. So Paul is saying that he, as a leader in the church, figured he had nothing to say if he didn't somehow point to Jesus. That's all he's got to say. If it wasn't an exposition of the gospel from the Holy Scriptures, if it wasn't an application of the gospel to some part of life or another, if it didn't exalt the grace and the righteousness of God as seen in the gospel, well, he had nothing to say. In fact, uh, it's even more radical than that. Paul doesn't just say, I was determined to preach nothing but Jesus. He says, I decided to know nothing among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he's saying, I don't even want to think about anything but the gospel. I want the good news of Jesus Christ crucified to shape my entire reality, my relationship with God, and my ministry to you. I want want always to be mindful of the gospel in everything that I'm doing. So the cross... which represents the the counterintuitive, gracious, sacrificial love of God, isn't just what he wants to talk about. It's the only thing he wants to know on an intimate level. This is the only thing I want to know. It isn't just the message. It's the method of his life and his ministry. Knowing Jesus Christ crucified is a whole new approach to life, all of life, We have a king who loved us and gave himself for us, who chose himself, the way of the cross. You cannot proclaim the self-emptying, self-humiliating, self-sacrificial love of God at the cross while still valuing, really, what this world apart from God values. While living in self-aggrandizing, self-advancing ways. If you're clinging to your own wisdom and power and wealth and honor, then... Uh, you're saying that those are what truly matter to you. That's where you find status and significance in God's sight. That's the things that give you purpose and meaning worth pursuing. Those are the things that shape your identity. It's what sh- gives you joy, gives you life. And That means, <clears throat> you know, if you're clinging to the world's versions of wisdom and power and wealth and honor, you really don't have much use for the grace of God. Uh, You don't have much use for the cross, which cuts straight across all the values of this world apart from God. Paul's saying that he, as a leader in the church, came to the Corinthians, uh, not just with fancy, eloquent, charismatic words that made the grace of God seem appealing and sensible to sophisticated, cultured, worldly people, but he came with a life that showed his joyful dependence on that grace. Spirit-filled life, Christ-centered life, With a demeanor that calls attention uh, not to himself, but to God. So he says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So if I were a charismatic, persuasive, philosophical debater, all things that are highly valued by the world, in its rejection of Jesus, in its rejection of his cross, as ways to set ourselves apart from each other or above each other, then, you know, you might be more fascinated with that charisma than with the true message of the gospel that's being proclaimed. But if I come with weakness, unpolished, unenviable in speech, and I tell you that God even loves broken people like me and like you, and I show you what it looks like to live a Christ-centered, cross-centered life, then... When you place your trust and your hope in Jesus, well, it'll be in Jesus, not in me. It'll be demonstrated by, uh, it'll be a demonstration of God's spirit at work in you, God's power to do what only he can do in changing you, actually, by his grace. So Paul's talking about, uh, specifically about himself as a preacher, and so the most immediate application is probably to pastors, and I'll say personally speaking, this idea of uh, being cross-centered, not just in message, but also in method, in life, is uh, absolutely the essential element of my philosophy of preaching and ministry. Um, It pretty pretty much sums up my highest aspirations. To know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified also pretty much sums up my greatest disappointments about myself as a preacher. Uh, I wish I wasn't so concerned with what people think of me as a public speaker. I wish my only thought and affection was always for the grace of God at work in your lives. But I'm really, uh, really just a messed up sinner who desperately needs the same grace that is proclaimed to you. So you may have heard this analogy. The best evangelist is like a thirsty person leading another thirsty person to where they can find water. Now that's good. That's how the fountain of living waters is exalted and not the thirsty guy who is leading another thirsty guy. When everything you say and everything you do points to the cross, the sacrificial love of Jesus, then God is exalted and other people are helped. Other people are encouraged in their faith and their relationship with God. Now, that's not just applicable to pastors or church leaders. It applies to everyone who wants to honor God, actually, in their lives, to everyone who wants to participate in the real life of the church. But a church leader will be specially marked by this, uh, by a constant, tireless, joyful redirection of people's attention to Jesus Christ and him crucified. A leader in the church must have a cross-centered message and a cross-centered method or way of life. A leader in the church must have what is called here by Paul, uh, the secret and hidden wisdom of God. Uh, That's not some fancy mystical thing we're talking about. It's a wisdom that is revealed only in Jesus A wisdom that's revealed only in the Christ-centered scriptures. A wisdom that uh, unspiritual people cannot recognize. This is not intuitive for them. A wisdom that makes no sense to the world apart from God. The wisdom of knowing the real Jesus in his cruciform love. Knowing how Jesus Christ crucified can change our lives in every way. A leader in the church is recognized by his ability to apply the gospel to any situation in life. For the good of others. Someone who calls attention to himself by his eloquence, who's constantly talking about himself or promoting himself, makes himself the center of attention, comes across as condescending or patronizing or judgmental, has no place in the leadership of the church. Uh, Rather, church leaders need to exemplify repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. They need to exemplify humble reliance on the grace of God and a thankful celebration of God's life that's freely given to them. Church leaders need to cultivate an atmosphere where all kinds of people feel encouraged by the gospel, not where some feel excluded or Bible-beaten. You'll recognize good church leaders as those who don't think much of themselves as church leaders because they don't think much of themselves, but they think much of Jesus. They'll be the first ones to say, I don't have it all together. They'll be the first ones to say, there will surely be many others entering heaven before me. They'll be the first ones to say, this culture is messed up because of people like me. This community, this church is messed up because of people like me. And they'll be the first ones to say, thanks be to God that all is joy and light and glory. All is on the mend because... God has chosen to dwell with his people by his grace because God has become a human and gone to the cross to save us from ourselves, and God has put his spirit in our hearts to assure us of his love. Thanks be to God. And good church leaders will be the first ones about whom you will tend to say, I'm I'm always encouraged in my faith when I'm around them. They're always talking about how amazing Jesus is. I I don't understand it, but they always show me love and acceptance. They remind me of my adoption as a son or a daughter of God. Even if I've been kind of a jerk to them, they've been kind and gracious. They inspire me to rejoice in my salvation when I'm down. They, they point me toward the gospel and how it changes me to be a more forgiving person, a more loving parent, a better friend to people who are totally different from me. They really help me to pray and to be thankful Sometimes I might not understand them, sometimes I might not even agree with them, but they make a point of directing my attention to Jesus. Their willingness to serve reminds me of Jesus Christ crucified. Now, the people who make for good leaders in the church aren't necessarily successful in the world's eyes. You know, when you go to nominate officers, elders, and deacons, we're not just saying, oh, find the people who are most successful in business, they're probably the ones They're not always wise, they're not always powerful, they're not always rich. In fact, when you believe in the cross, when you live the way of the cross, you're going right against the grain of the whole world. But when the whole world is plunging headlong into the dark, it's probably a good thing to turn around and push upstream toward the light. Uh, So let's follow the folks who are doing that, who are pointing to that light in the darkness, who are leading us to that one stream in the desert by exalting the grace of God in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need you to teach us your ways and to confirm them as your ways and to convince us of the goodness of your ways. By your spirit, we need your help. We need our eyes opened to the cruciform glory of your love in Christ. We need our hearts attuned to the strange song of the gospel. We need our minds Renewed by being set on Jesus Christ crucified and risen and glorified. We need you to change us at depths that are unfathomable to us. We want to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. We at least want that to be the desire of our hearts. That would mean everything to us, so please help us to see your Son as all our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.